0: Welcome to the One Crossing Podcast. Here you can find past sermons along with other exclusive content. Our prayer is that God will move in your life even when you are on the go. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, good morning, Crossing Church. How are you doing today? You doing great? Man, I am glad to see all of you. and We're going through this experience that we call 2020. It is so nice to be, able, to be able to see all of your faces and for you to see each other's and to be reminded that in this world of insanity, there are still a few places where there is sanity and there is clarity and there's nothing better than being in the house of the Lord with the people of the Lord to remind us of that. And I'm so thankful that we have the opportunity to do that. I want to welcome all of our campuses joining all over from uh, this uh, whole region all of our campuses open all of our ministries open and For those of you that are taking the extra precautions of being home We're so thankful for each one of you and for our tech team That's able to produce that for you so that you can join uh, with us and be part of this fellowship and this family uh, from home. Last week we had 3,600 people in our physical locations. That's a big deal. That's 53% of our, well, I would call pre-COVID attendance. And I'm just thankful for everyone that uh, is uh, having that boldness to come out and to share. And we had nine baptisms last week that you just saw on a video. God is working in an incredible ways. Simply, incredible. And today we're in this series called The Cure. And today I'm going to be sharing with you from the book of Hebrews. And there's really nothing that I'm going to share with you that I haven't shared at some time in the past. Okay. And some of you might go, oh, I remember when he preached that before. But the truth is you just can't hear this enough. And it's not because I'm saying it. It's because of the power of it. In, in God's Word. Hebrews is such an, just a powerful, uh, impactful book of the Bible, and the things that you get from it in your own personal faith life are just inc- absolutely incredible. Uh, if you're watching on Wednesday evening, we took a deep dive into the book of Hebrews for the last two weeks, and you know that we're in deep water when we are in Hebrews. So, I mean, there's some really, really deep Stuff and but it is a rich scripture uh, for all of us. Now, just to kind of start us off, how many of you would say, "I just really don't need any more faith. I, I think I'm good right where I am. Really, don't 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 try to fill me with anything else because I just feel like I'm full to the brim. I'm just mm, I feel like I'm right where I need to be." I don't think any of us would say that. I don't think there's a single soul that would go, that would have that audacity to be able to say that. As a matter of fact, we would probably say the uh, opposite of that is that what I really need is more. How can I get more faith? Teach me how to have more faith. But let me, let me uh, give you a caveat with that. Asking for more faith is a very courageous prayer. It's like asking for patience. My mother used to say, if you pray for patience, duck. Because God's gonna give you all the things that require patience. And I think the same thing is true when you pray for more faith, because in order to have more faith, circumstances need to present themselves in your life that require you to depend more on God than on yourself. In James chapter one, verses two and three, He wrote, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face, listen to this word trials, how many of you think that's just great? Give me some trials, God. Trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith, how many of you say, oh yeah, Lord, test my faith, produces perseverance, huh? wait a minute, when I hear the word trials and or I hear testing of my faith, I'm kind of wanting to find the exit door, right? Like I, I don't really want to be a part of that. Put them both together, trials and testing of my faith, I really don't want any of that, right? But this is what James is saying increases or empowers our faith. Mother Teresa said, I know God won't give me anything I can't handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. And I wonder if that is a a reflection of maybe how you feel in your prayer life. Now, what Hebrews does for us is it helps us to understand this reality. It gives us incredible pictures of faith. And then it gives us instructions on how to live that faith out in real time. Now, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you four specific things, four topics, if you will, four axioms that you need to invest into your own heart I understand these truths about faith, and I really believe that Hebrews is going to revolutionize your faith through uh, what we read today and what we share today. Here's the first one. Ready? Faith increased, which is what we're talking about. Faith increased is faith redirected. Faith increased is faith redirected. In Hebrews 11, one, it says, Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, I want us to think about that a little bit. We're usually sure about not things we hope for. We're sure about things that we already have or possess, right? And we are not usually certain about things we can't see. We tend to, as human beings, to be certain of the things that we can see or touch or feel or taste, smell, right? We're certain of those things, but we're not certain of what we don't see, and we're not sure of what we hope for. So what this is saying is that there needs to be a redirection in our lives. Like, instead of concentrating on what we can see and what we already possess, we need to shift that to what we hope for and what we do not see. Faith increased is faith redirected. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus teaches us uh, this lesson with his disciples because his disciples actually ask him to increase their faith. Let's read it together. Luke 17, 5 and 6. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he replied, check this out. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now hold on right there. How many of us have been able to speak to any object and have it move at our request without touching it? How many of you just went, mulberry tree to the sea? Or to say to a mountain, uproot yourself and move. No, you've never seen that. I don't care what TV show you're watching. You're on TBN. I don't care if a person considers himself a faith healer. Just see if they can actually do that. Because that is a faith exercise. Now, here's the thing. You can't do that. Nobody can, except for Jesus. If Jesus said to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the heart of the sea, it would obey him. If Jesus said, be uprooted mountain and go over there, it would obey him, right? All right. You're going to see something here in just a second, right? There's a great lesson here. And I'm going to make a really bold statement that you're not going to agree with, but I want you to hang with me. All right, here it is. Here comes this bold statement. We all... Have exactly the same amount of faith. We, d- huh? Did he just, what did he, we all have exactly the same amount of faith. Wait, that can't be true. That's just not right. I want you to listen to the rest of this thought. Ready? It's not how much faith you have, it's who your faith is in. It's not how much faith you have, it's who your faith is in. You can't move a mulberry tree or a mountain, but Jesus can. It's not how much faith you have, but who your faith is in. Faith increased is faith redirected. I want to illustrate that with our 48th Street campus pastor, Corey Hollensteiner. He did not do this for the sermon, but I took advantage of it. I want you to watch your screens right now, the video. Okay. Corey did not put his faith in the right thing. Okay? It's not how much faith you have. He had plenty of faith right there. Did you see that? He had all kinds of faith. It wasn't how much faith he had, it was who or what his faith was in, and it was definitely in the wrong place. And how did he end up looking? How do you end up looking when you put your faith in the wrong place? Listen, you have a tremendous amount of faith. You have every bit of the amount of faith that I have, or that your neighbor has, or anyone else has, right? Uh, wait a minute, I'm still struggling with that. How many of you drive? Raise your hand if you drive, okay? Think about how much faith you put in that little yellow line in between the lanes. I mean, there is a projectile that weighs maybe a ton and a half, two tons, coming at you at 60, 70 miles an hour, and you think that magically that little yellow paint line is a force field that will keep that other hurtling object from hitting you you got in that car and you never even thought of somebody that was not in control of themselves or that vehicle coming across that line you have an incredible amount of faith in that little yellow line you have great faith right but sometimes that faith doesn't work out because it's not how much faith you have it's who or what your faith is in And here's the key to this whole thing, this first point, and that is you have to get faith out of the bank of yourself and you have to put it in the bank of God. Make a withdrawal out of the bank of yourself and you need to make a deposit into the bank of God. It's not how much faith you have. You have plenty. It's where you're directing that faith. Now, when we get into Hebrews 11, it's talking about making that choice, right? And so uh, that choice is between yourself and God. So in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, it talks about Abraham, and it says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though, check this out, even though he did not know where he was going faith increased is faith redirected. It's not how much faith you have, it's who your faith is in. He trusted God. He didn't know where he was going, but he trusted God. I have to ask you a hard question right now. Who are you trusting in right now? How much of that faith that you have are you investing in God, and how much of that faith that you have are you investing in yourself? Right at this moment, That should be a challenging question for each one of us right now to consider. Here's the second point, okay? First one, faith increased is faith redirected. We learned this from Hebrews. Second one is this, faith is a response. Faith is a response. As a matter of fact, it's always, always a response. I want you to look at that last scripture again from uh, Hebrews 11 about Abraham. What was he doing? He didn't initiate. It was a response, right? He made a response. God told him to go somewhere. He had no idea. Do I go north, south, east, west, north, east? I don't know. I just need to pack and leave, and God will let me know. It was his response. Look at verse 17 of the same chapter. It says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, there's that word, Tested him, offered Isaac, that's his son, as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Hey, he didn't do that just because he woke up one day and said, Hey, I think I'll just kill my son Isaac. That'll be a great idea. Do that because I love God. He did that because God initiated it and then he responded to it, right? And we're going to dig down deeper into that. Later, But you can see right there, it's a response. God initiates, Abraham responds. It was either this or this. It was either yes, God, or no, God. And you're doing the same thing, and I'm doing the same thing. God initiates in our lives, and we're either going to say yes, God, or we're going to say no, God. But some of us, probably all of us, definitely all of us at one time or another in our lives do this other thing, which is we pretend that we're not hearing God at all because we really don't want any part of it, right? Some of us might actually think that we're not needing to respond to God because we're really not hearing God. But you are hearing God, and you have heard God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and the first part of 2, it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has spoken to you by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. God has spoken to you. Some of you go, well, I'm actually wanting God to just actually speak to me. I need to hear his voice. He needs to make an impression on my heart about some specific thing. And a lot of us aren't taking the time to listen to the conversation that God already had with us, and it's called your Bible. That's God's Word. And it's God's Word to you. It's not just God's Word to somebody else thousands of years. It's God's Word to you. To you, As a matter of fact, Jesus and God's word, the Bible, that is God's final word. That's his propositional truth, and it's all in there. Everything you need is in there. Then that's not to say, don't get me wrong here, that's not to say that God won't specifically direct you. God does specifically direct you. But understand this, God has an expectation of you when he initiated a conversation through his word that you'd be listening through his word. He has that expectation. And he he is always, listen, he is always looking for a response. God's word demands a response. The relationship you have with God demands a response. And the reason that a lot of us don't hear him is because every other thing in our lives is just drowning him out. We have so much ambient noise in our lives, don't we? It's just so much of it. And I think sometimes the ambient noise in our life is comfort to us. It's like having that app on your phone that makes the sound of a fan because you just can't stand quiet in the bedroom. And you can't sleep without it, right? And we, we want that white noise. And, we, and, and the truth is sometimes the lack of silence and all of that other ambient noise prevents us from being able to hear the still small voice of the lord and you know what we have to do we have to quiet down we have to have times in our life when we quiet down and then we listen to god and move in his direction psalm 46 says be still and know that i am god it's like how do you know that he's god without taking the opportunity of just being still Quiet your life down. That's why moments like the ones that we're sharing all across our campuses and even at home right now is so important because what we're doing is we're being still. So here's my question in the second point to you. What God-directed response are you living out in your life right now? What God-directed response? Because God's already initiated with you. What God-directed response are you living out in your life right now? And if not, why not? If not, why not? Number three, faith is movement. Faith increases. is faith redirected, right? Faith is a response. Faith is also movement. And I'm going to say it like this. Faith is not acknowledgement. Faith is not acknowledgement. Faith is movement. There's a big difference. Have you ever seen a person, or maybe this person is you, and someone else has done this to you, you've done it to somebody else, where you've confronted them because there's something in their life that just really shouldn't be there, something in their life that needs a major adjustment or a major change, and you've confronted them, confronted them out of a relationship, and then they've said something like this back to you, yeah, I really need to do something about that. Yeah, I really need to handle that. But the fact is, they never do. That's the difference between acknowledgement and movement. Faith is movement, and it's movement in a specific way and in a specific direction. In the book of 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul says this in chapter 5, verse 7, we live by faith and not by sight. We live by faith and not by sight. Now, let me express how that is movement, okay? And what I mean by connecting that verse to movement. It means that walking by faith is not walking in a direction where you see what's in front of you. Because it says not by sight. So would you classify your walk of faith as walking in a direction or in a a certain way where you're not focusing on something in front of you? Because I guarantee you, in every other way that you walk as a human being, you are focusing on something in front of you, and whether it's down on the, the ground or whether it's off in the distance. You're focusing and moving in the direction of that, Right. But walking by faith is the opposite of that. Walking by faith is like walking through life backwards. Your eyes are open, but you just can't see where you're going because you're walking backwards. Here's the beauty of it. Even though you can't see where you're going, you can see where you've been. And you can see that God has been there every step of the way. You see, walking by faith is not a lesson in watching or looking. It's a lesson in listening. It's about listening instead of looking. You're listening intently for God's direction. And then you're moving in that direction as God enables you or God speaks to you. So just think about yourself walking backwards and listening intently because this is kind of scary i could hit something that's what walking by faith is and that's how the people the hebrews writer used as illustrations that's how they walked walking through life backwards because when you walk by faith the outcome isn't the point it's just simple obedience in motion what god's looking for is obedience in motion. And when we listen and obey what the voice of God is telling us, then we're doing the right thing. If we're walking by sight, then that's really about us. It's not really about God, right? In Hebrews 11, verse 32 to 38, it really kind of just hits this hall of faith, all right? It says, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Wow! What victory when we walk by faith. Well, hold on. Let's get to the second half of that scripture. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging. Others were chained and put into prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. That was Isaiah. They were put to death by the sword. They went around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Some of you have said before, you know what I want God to say? I want God to say, well done someday. Good and faithful servant entered to the joy of the Lord. Or would you rather have him say that? The world wasn't worthy of you. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. See, faith, Is movement. Many of us at the crossing, we've been acknowledging, acknowledging, and acknowledging for a long time. But there really hasn't been movement. And I challenge you to move, move today. Fourth and final point about faith from the book of Hebrews. Faith is a relationship. Faith is a relationship. Now, there are a lot of stories in the book of Hebrews, but the one that captures me the most is in chapter 11, and it's the story that we've already read just a bit about, and that was Abraham's sacrifice of his son Isaac. As a matter of fact, it's my favorite story of faith in the whole Bible, because it encapsulates the essence of what purity of faith is, and it points us to the source of faith like nothing else. And even though it's referred to in Hebrews 11, the actual story is in Genesis chapter 22, and in my opinion, it's the most powerful story bar none of the Old Testament. And What is the story? God tells Abraham to take his only son and sacrifice him. Specifically, hold on with me. Specifically, he was commanded to take a knife and plunge it into his son and watch him die. And then he was to burn his dead body as an offering on an altar. God was saying to Abraham, do that for me. Now, I want you to understand, none of this made sense. God never never ask for a human sacrifice. God would never ask for such a horrible thing, such a rotten, unfair thing. But he did that with Abraham. And it's so unreasonable. I mean, the the God that Abraham had known up to this point would have never asked such a thing. Never, ever. And yet, completely out of character, God asks this question. And you know what you find from Abraham? You find no pushback at all. very next verse in Genesis 22 is the next day Abraham saddled his donkey. It was like God said it, and now I'm moving. I'm going to do it. Faith is movement. Didn't argue, I mean... Wouldn't he say, hey, God, I'm 120 years old. Hello? I didn't think I heard you. You know, maybe turn on my hearing aid a little bit. No. He just did it. Now, I want you to think a little bit deeper into the story. Abraham is 120 years old when God asks him to do this. And even though those of us that might have studied the Bible in the past, particularly this story would think that Isaac was just a little child. He was like a toddler, a really young child. He was about 20. So I want you to think about a 120-year-old man, father, and a 20-year-old strapping young son. Who's going to be stronger? Who's more powerful? And so Abraham gets his son Isaac, and they get the supplies that they need, and they head off to this region that the that God told him, this region of Moriah. And Abraham, the whole way, knows exactly what he's going to do. Isaac has no idea other than he's going to go, Abraham, his father's going to go worship God, right? And so they get to the base of this mountain called Moriah, and since Isaac's the young strapping man, he has to carry the wood. So he carries the wood up this mountain, because you have to have wood in order to burn a sacrifice. He has no idea that he's the sacrifice. They get part of the way up the mountain, and, and Isaac asks a question of Abraham. He says, uh, I see you got the knife. I see you have some fire. I see you have, uh, we have the wood. Did we forget? Did we have a senior moment? Did we forget a sacrifice? Dad? Abraham says, God will provide it. God will provide a sacrifice. They get to the top of the mountain and even though it's not related in the scripture, there had to be a moment where Abraham tells Isaac, hey, you're the sacrifice. What would you do if you were Isaac at that moment? Game over. Game over. No, nope, not Isaac. Isaac was bound by his father. Do you think that Isaac could be bound by his 120-year-old father without his own permission? Do you think that Isaac submitted to his father? Do you think that his 120-year-old father would have been able to lift up a 20-year-old man, his body probably fighting and bound up onto an altar? Or do you think Isaac hopped up on that altar so that his father could actually accomplish what he believed God was calling him to do. And you go on through that story, and, and you find out in Genesis 22 that Abraham raised the knife to dispatch his son, and at the moment the knife was in the air, and not until the moment was in, that, that the knife was in the air, did God say, hold it! Now I know! Now I know that you love me, Abraham, because you were willing to sacrifice your only son for me. And there was a sacrifice with its horns caught in the thicket that God provided, and that was the sacrifice that was given on top of that mountain. Now, what does all that have to do with relationship? Faith is a relationship. In that moment, Abraham and God are the closest that they've ever been not necessarily from Abraham's perspective, but from God's perspective, because Abraham would have no concept of this, okay? But the Bible calls Abraham the friend of God. They were close. And there hasn't been a moment this close between God and a human being since the Garden of Eden. And it happens on top of this mountain. And what this is what's happening, okay? Now, Abraham doesn't understand this, but this is what is happening. God, is feeling an emotion and he wants to share his emotion with his friend abraham and he's showing abraham abraham you don't have to kill your son today because i'm here and i'm going to stop you from killing your own son but there will be a day on this very spot on top of this very mountain, Mount Moriah, which became where the temple was built in Jerusalem, that my son will have wood put on his back, and he will walk that wood up to the top of the mountain, and he will be crucified, he will die on this mountain i am I, I am going to allow him to be obedient to me in this way because Of this world and my love for this world and the people in it I'm gonna allow horrible abusive people to murder him and unlike your son Abraham I'm not going to intervene when the hammer falls I'm gonna let him do it and when he bleeds His blood is gonna cover the whole world, including your sins, Abraham, and including Isaac's sins, Abraham. And I just wanted you to know, father to father, son to son, what it feels like. Abraham and God are connecting together, and God is connecting emotionally to Abraham, feeling the very same things, the very same pain that God himself will feel when he offers his own son on the top of that mountain. And this could only be achieved by the reckless abandon of Abraham's faith. Faith is found in the relationship. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, it says in Hebrews. A little further in the story, in the book of Hebrews, it gives us more insight into it. This is what it says. It says that Abraham believed that God had the power to raise the dead. I was preaching this on Thursday. Someone came up to me and said, Do you ever recall God raising the dead before Abraham? Would Abraham have had any reference for that? The answer is no. Abraham had faith to believe that God would raise the dead. He fully expected to kill his son and then for God to raise him back. Do you know why? Because in Genesis 22, it says, I and the boy are gonna go up on top of the mountain and worship, and then we, we will come back down to you. (laughs) He thought he was gonna kill his son and God would raise him from the dead. No, God spared his son, but God allowed his son, Jesus Christ, to be killed, and he did raise him from the dead. And that's why, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we will not be disappointed because God does have the power to raise the dead, which means he has the power to raise you and me from the dead. My question is this for you. For a God who would not even spare his own son because of his love for you, for a God who would pay such a horrible, terrible price to satisfy his own desire for judgment, but then would pay the price himself because of his love for you. And he says to you, I want you to have an intimate personal relationship with me through my son, Jesus. How can you say no to him? I want you to consider that as we move to a time of decision. Thank you for joining us. A special thank you to those of you that choose to give to this ministry. It's because of your generosity that this ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit thecrossing.net forward slash podcast for more information. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends tagging One Crossing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.